So I don't know how you feel about this, but I think that I'm okay with the Brandon Braga era of Star Trek Voyager if this is the kind of quality we're going to get. Yeah, I'm pretty good with this. Um, in a lot of ways, the the thing we we noted Brandon Braga for right away in TNG years was his kind of body horror. He likes weird alien sh- body shit, and we had that in both of these episodes, a little lesser in Night, but certainly in Drone. Um, this, I assume, is the point where the Borg are going to fit pretty heavily in, and... I am looking forward to his take on the Borg. Certainly, I found the take on the Borg in First Contact. I really liked that, and giving Brennan Bragg a kind of full reins to do what he wants with that is... I'm excited about that, and I like his... I like this take on the characters. Uh, Janeway has gone into a little differently in Night uh, than she had in earlier seasons, I would say, and it, it, it kind of... I think Night answers that question that we've been asking a lot of times about does the show know that Janeway is this reckless and I think this version of the show recognizes yes sometimes Janeway is a little reckless to a degree that's a problem yeah I I agree because I you know you saw that obviously in in the season four finale hope and fear and and then it really comes up right again in night and Night is a really interesting... Actually, I think that the fourth into the fifth season is a really interesting choice because, you know, one of the things that that, that we always talked about in, in TNG and DS9 is that sort of this idea that the best of both worlds was both one of the best things and the worst mm. things to ever happen to, to Star Trek because... It was a phenomenal episode, this, the second episode, not as much for, for reasons that we talked about uh, way back in 1979, <laughs> but it really solidified this idea that a season finale of Star Trek had to be a cliffhanger, had yeah. to be a two-parter, and you know, DS9 got away with not doing that a couple of times. Voyager so far has only done the cliffhanger twice at the end of the second and third seasons, and you would think, okay, well, the fourth season, they're going to do a cliffhanger, and, and they didn't. And I, I yeah. think that was the right choice because we, we've we already had the big season-ending cliffhangers on Star Trek Voyager. I'm not saying we're not going to have another one, but going into a new showrunner, I think it was a really, really good choice on the creative staff's part, on Jerry Taylor's part, Brandon Bragg, yeah. I'm sure they, they worked together on this. To go, okay, what are we going to do in the fifth season? You know, what what is Brannon Braga's idea of Star Trek Voyager? What type of show is this going to be? And Hope and Fear left it in a really interesting position at the end of the season. And going into the fifth season, we start out with pretty much a, a, a recontextualization of the events that actually started the entire series. And, mm. I mean, I don't know if that's something that you thought the fifth season was going to do, but it works really well, I think. I mean, this is an episode that not only remembers that Harry Kim plays the clarinet, but it remembers how they, yeah, how they got on this journey in the first place. And I'm not sure how much the show has really gone with the possibility that Janeway made a mistake. Certainly, characters like Seska didn't believe that Janeway made the right decision, but... I think the show generally believed that, yes, Janeway did what she had to do, and 
it may not have been something that they all liked, but it was the right thing to do and all of that. And we've certainly had – again, the ship under Maki control would not have made the decision to you know, destroy the caretaker. But um, it's been a while since I have seen uh, caretaker obviously, but I seem to remember feeling like – the sacrifices made at the end of the episode were a little unnecessary that Janeway could have sought a different solution and didn't. And this this episode, it gives me a lot of resonances to um, Omega Factor, Omega Directive. Um, yeah. Because in both of those episodes, uh, Janeway decides at one point, well, I'm going to solve this situation all by myself. Time to make a heroic sacrifice. And the rest of her crew has to talk her down from that and be like, listen, you have a Starfleet crew. We can figure this out. Like, Depend on us a little bit. Uh, I mean, Janeway is the kind of person who is Federation and Starfleet through and through. She will make... A she will sacrifice her life for the right thing to do. She is so eager to sacrifice her life. She is fine. She like looks for opportunities to, uh, and she wants to go out in that blaze of glory in a way. I think, and I'm not necessarily kind- sure that I entirely agree with that. I don't think it has to do with sort of self-aggrandizement in, in, in the way that, that you're kind of characterizing it, saying it's a blaze of glory, because I, 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 I think that Janeway feels a very deep responsibility to her crew, and she more often than not doesn't remember or doesn't believe that there is value in having her there as well. And- that, yeah, that's fair. And I think that I mean, if we if we go back to to caretaker, right? And and because Knight raises the question, you know, um, getting into a situation where, and I love the high concept science fiction of this, where there's a region of space that is devoid of all stellar phenomena, right? Which is completely empty, and that that would drive people a little crazy. I mean, I, even though they're living on a starship, even though they can't, you know, go outside to the park or whatever. Uh, just the fact of the matter that you can look out of a window and see things does have a psychological effect on you and and therefore not looking like looking out a window and not seeing anything uh, would also have a psychological effect on you yeah I, mean, I love the scene where neelix wakes up from the nightmare and you know grabs the cup of tea and then he says oh the next the first thing i'm doing in the morning is replicating some curtains because just the yeah the, the sort of like being uh you know being confronted with the sort of void is is very very oft putting to people but you know, I think that this is something that Janeway obviously never really could have foreseen when she made the decision in the pilot, in Caretaker, to destroy the array rather than have it fall into the hands of the Kazon. Now, and I think that it's an interesting choice for the show to to revisit that because, you know, for a show that that I think gets criticized a lot for not remembering things and for a show and I've criticized it for that you know not having an attention to detail you know I think that something like that which is also hearkening back to the type of person that Janeway is and having her realize that you know she's basically turning into Howard Hughes in this episode (laughs) you know hiding in her quarters you know she's not doing anything she's not going to the bridge she's not going to our ready room she's not going to the mess hall she's not going to the holodeck she's just hanging out in her you know dramatically lit quarters (laughs) 
and and Chakotay stops by once a week to to bring her a, a you know a care package and and give her updates on what's happening, and she's been doing that for two months. That indicates that that Janeway has always been driven by a real sense of, I think, regret for for what she decided. You know, was that her decision yeah. to make? Obviously, it was because she was the captain, but. That that was sort of a television moment, and now we're looking at sort of what the real-world ramifications of that would be. And I'm certainly not trying to overstate the case that, that Star Trek Voyager is transitioning into, like, Battlestar Galactica or something, because it's not going to. But it is engaging with that idea at least a little bit, and I think it's doing it effectively. Yeah, I think the show has done a good job of making Janeway seem like the kind of person who is always very active. She doesn't sleep much. She's always working on something. She will find a problem and she will go whole hog into it. She's good in a crisis. She's good at making a decision. It might not be the best decision, but she is good at making that decision. And when there is nothing to do, that's when she sits and she thinks and she goes over it. And then suddenly all of her anxieties come out. Um, She is a person who is very broody, but for most of the time, doesn't have the uh, kind of finds opportunities to not have the time to brood. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, and I and I think what's what's also interesting in in Knight is sort of the reliance she has on Chakotay and the the non reliance that she has on Tuvok, and how the show has actually sort of explicitly called that out. Where you get that great scene in the in the uh, briefing room where Chakotay basically says to Tuvok, like, "Dude, what up?" Like. You know, she says that you are her best friend and confidant and et cetera, et cetera. And I never see you talking to her. And that's something I've wondered as well. And the, you know, the show gives us an answer. The, you know, the answer is, well, Janeway only ever relies on me when she's not sure of what she's doing. And yeah. is that a satisfying answer? Is that not a satisfying answer? I buy it. I'm fine with it. I think it's a little bit of a retcon. I think it's Brian and Braga realizing that perhaps the show and the writers haven't been as careful with Tuvok as they probably should have been or could have been. Uh, and I also think that it is interesting that the Brown and Braga seasons of the show are famous for essentially being the seven Doctor and Janeway show. Because this seems to be an attempt to sort of reset the deck and sort of, you know, re get get the show back to some uh, some sort of status quo. And I guess we'll see where that goes. But I, I buy at least what's happening in this episode. I think everybody gets a chance to to shine in this episode. Yeah, there is a bit of a, I think table setting is the term you use. Uh, here, I mean, the episode does end with them two years away, and that's a very kind of that that is certainly a, a, a line. Okay, the chat the chapter is closed. We're in another area physically, but reestablishing who all of these characters are again it's a yeah because i also think that that it's not incidental that the sort of uh, uh the problem that janeway is confronted with in this episode where essentially they're dumping toxic waste into their space you know there, there's pretty much an easy answer there and the easy answer is stop them from dumping the toxic waste you know in, in a certain sense this i mean you know i don't think the show is being subtle in in giving us an inversion of the caretaker decision obviously yeah they destroy this thing and they're actually able to get closer to home as opposed to closing off their way uh, for two years and having to fly through this space for two years. You know, obviously that's not something that they're going to do because they need stories for the television show. 
But it also works thematically really nicely because, I don't know, in a way, it's almost like Janeway is able to to have her cake and eat it. You know, she's able to figure out a way to destroy this uh, wormhole or whatever and also able to use it to get home or to get closer to home. And I don't know, is that a satisfying... Is that a satisfying resolution for you? Well, yeah. I mean, again, this is a situation where she doesn't ask her crew. She immediately decides, well, this can't be done. I've got to go out on the ship and destroy it myself behind them, and I'm going to do this for the— And again, once everybody hears her plan, they're just like, no, we're not doing that. You know, here's here's what we're actually going to do, and this is going to save all of this. Again, I, I think Janeway still needs to learn the— lesson that she can rely on her crew and i think it is in a way a reward for doing the right thing in this case you could view the premise of voyager as a punishment for doing the right thing but this is a little bit of a reward for that yes yes and and but at the same time i mean i i do want to sort of critically engage with the idea of janeway some more because i i think that I don't know. I struggle with it, right? Because one of the things that I've that I've always said about Janeway in these podcasts is that I can never really figure her out. You know, she is very reckless. She does make decisions that seem to endanger the entire crew. And I think the show is trying to critically engage with that a little bit. But at the same time, I'm not sure if it tracks that she's very concerned about the crew. You know, she's going to go off and she's going to sacrifice her own life essentially to save the crew. This is something she did and this was going to do in this episode, something she was going to do in the Omega Directive. You know, she she does this a lot, but then at the same time, she does the exact opposite of that. And so... I mean, the Omega Directive, certainly that was a different situation than here, but her her decision to go off on her own and all of that almost seems like she is punishing herself for making that ultimate decision. Like, she does say, oh, I'm not doing that to the crew again, Uh, but she's doing it to herself, and she – I think at this point she has judged herself as in the wrong for her actions and caretaker, and – the rest of the crew saying no we're going to figure this out is a kind of kind of them absolving her of that or exonerating her i think that's part of what's going on too yeah a little bit i mean i don't know i i i i it just yeah it just just does seem like she's she very clearly feels she has done the wrong thing and i think she is look feeling very i mean she is staying in her room out of guilt and I think this is her way of, you know, well, the 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 only way she can think to soothe her conscience is by solving this all by herself. Again, Tuvok uh, tells Chakotay the story about her first command, where uh, they all died during a survey mission, and then in order to, and and she completed the mission herself as a way of of alleviating the guilt about that she did she wanted to make sure that they did not die in vain yeah and i think that's a really good story because it 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 really nicely nicely contextualizes exactly where her stubbornness comes from but at the same time like i still don't know if and maybe that maybe it's okay that the show doesn't have a neat answer for this or or a neat understanding of janeway's character i mean 
is it possible that the show is doing something interesting with her character where we just don't really know because she's a little unpredictable because people are unpredictable and she has moods and she has things that she thinks and then things that she, you know, she can change her mind. You know, I I don't know. And also we, you know, this is the beginning of the season. Part of this could be, you know, Brett, Part of this could be Braga saying, all right, this is going to be one of the themes I'm going to deal with this season. Was Janeway in the right to make her decision and caretaker? Is Janeway a good captain? And here I am introducing this question and making you think about it in a different way. We'll get to it later. See, I actually disagree with you. I, I mean, I know what happens in the season, um, but also... I think that the ending of this episode is very indicative of the fact that this was a recontextualization for this episode only, that it was getting to this place where she could make the opposite decision of caretaker and get them two years closer to home. I mean, I don't, it may, it may be that the show wants to, to put a, put a capper in that as well and just say, okay, okay, we dealt with that and now we're done with that and we can move forward with the show that I want to make. I, I don't know. So I guess the other thing that that I just kind of, well, there's two things I want to briefly touch on before we move on to to drone, which is so so a I I just like I mean we like hangout episodes we've always said we like hangout episodes <laughs> and at least for the first fifteen or twenty minutes of this episode it is a hangout episode you know no one really has a lot to do and I like the fact that the characters are getting a bit pricklier I like the fact that that the show is allowing the characters to you know be not combative necessarily but just sort of like shave off or, or sand down the edges of that Starfleet niceness that we had so much in TNG. Yeah. And I also, everybody is both a little pissed off at each other because of the situation and also relaxed in different ways. There is a very different uh, social code in these times. I mean, the scene where Harry Kim is playing his clarinet and Tuvok comes up and just starts listening to his him play. And, that's something Tuvok would probably never do, but he, what is there to do? They're both – Tuvok is going crazy too. Tuvok is feeling the boredom of all of this, and this is at least something different. It's it's very highlighting the desperation of everybody on this show. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I mean everyone is acting a little bit off. Everyone is acting a little bit different. I mean I think that the this episode does a really good job of selling that in a very, very short time frame. You know, we only we only get about 15 or 20 minutes before the plot actually kicks in. And we get to see all the crew members doing various things. And I think it's really well done. And then the other thing, I mean, we haven't really touched on the plot at all, and I don't know that I even really want to. I mean, I think that, once again, we have Delta it's, Quadrant yeah. dicks, and then we also have some nice aliens that give them the benefit of the doubt, and everyone's happy at the end. And it's fine, and it's very Star Trekky, and it's a good lesson for everybody. But what I really want to talk about is Captain Proton. I mean, we also do have this very old school, this is a social message episode. I mean, this is the the nuclear waste episode. And there's something I like about that, too. Again, I like that earnest social commentary that Star Trek does. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that before, where Star Trek Voyager is the show to, to do that sort of TOS-style social commentary, I think, more than any other Berman-era Star Trek. And it's it's nice to say, I think it pulls it off very well. And that the season opener is a social commentary episode suggests to me that that's going to be a focus of this season, too. It's possible. It's possible. We'll just have to wait and see. 
Uh, and I also, well, there's not a lot to say about Captain Proton. It's amusing, and people love Captain Proton. Uh, and Captain Proton makes a reappearance, so just watch out for that. Oh, good. This is the new holodeck program. They they get, like, a new one every <laughs> season, and this is the new yeah. one. So. Oh, cool. I, I do um, think it's a little. I mean, I was. I'm always on the fence about whether or not I like the uh, the idea that the holodeck can make them actually appear like they're in black and white or not. But hey, whatever. <laughs> um, the one thing that I really liked about this episode was Neelix, uh, because again, this was a very deep insight that following a uh, mortal coil, of course, Neelix would be terrified of nothingness. Like when he is. With the when the lights go out, Neelix is for all intents and purposes dead. Yeah, and that is uh, again. I thought that was really well observed. Yeah, I, I think that's a really well observed point because it's something that I hadn't necessarily picked up on. But yeah, of course. I mean, I, I don't want to overplay it too much. I mean, I think that everybody on the ship would probably be at least somewhat. Yes, of course, freaked out. I, I mean, Neelix, of course, but, is scared. I mean, he is, like, terrified when he wakes up. And, yes, that's something that is true. I mean, if, if you have ever experienced total darkness, it is extremely disorienting. And that is a real—I think that is a real thing that could affect Neelix, I think, more than a lot of the other people on the on the ship. Yeah, everybody on the ship is disturbed, but— Though in those scenes we see, for example, Tuvok and Harry Kim with a flashlight and stuff, and everybody and Janeway trying to get this power cell around, and Neelix is the one who's having the panic attack. So the episode does make a point of it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for night. We'll move on to Drone in just a minute. But before we do that, I do want to take an opportunity to remind all of you that Truckabout is listener supported. We do rely on your generous donations each and every month to continue to bring this podcast to you. If you would like to join the cool club of people that give us money each and every month, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. Okay, let's talk about Drone, which I'll be honest. I watched Drone about a half hour before we sat down to record. I haven't seen it in probably three or four years. I have been in an extremely foul mood all evening. So my opinion of this episode, I am trying to be very careful because I am very, very like ready to go. I hated this episode so much, uh, but I know that it's partially to do with the fact that like I was in a bad mood when I watched it. Uh, but I don't really think I liked it that much. Well, it's because we have the Hugh episode from TNG, and we have the the episode where Odo raises the baby Jem Hadar from DS9. And this is another in a kind of spiritual trilogy between the three episodes, and this is the weakest of the lot. I mean, that that was part of it for me. Yeah, and... I struggle with this episode because there's nothing really wrong with it. I mean, it's 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 well written, it's well constructed. I is it just because you don't really like the Borg that much? I mean, I don't like the Borg that much. That's true. I mean, Seven of Nine, I think, transcends her Borgness, and they do fascinating things with that. And again, we always seem to like the character whose journey is to become human character and that is certainly seven of nine um but i think 
part of this episode is beyond the Borgness. There isn't that much. Does that make sense? No, like, it does. This it, is about, it does make sense. This is about the Borg. Right. It's it's about the Borg, but it's about Seven of Nine, but it's about the Doctor. One of the things that I have struggled with with Star Trek Voyager's later seasons, while I like them, I don't think that the show has ever developed like a deep a bench as TNG to sort of bounce yeah. for for Janeway to bounce ideas off of and at you know this is a really really big decision to let this Borg drone yeah develop and it's just kind of like yeah whatever I, I just with this episode it really just feels to me like everyone on the crew of voyager knows that they're actually not on a starship and in fact they're on a television show called star trek voyager and so they're all going to be fine because they're on a television show and they're not actually flying through space does, does that make any sense yeah, uh, it because just, it two just feels episodes... like the stakes are very low, and no one is really taking this very seriously. I mean, two episodes ago, what was the problem? Somebody, it's a decision that Jane Wayne made upset the balance of power with the Borg, and it destroyed all of these people, including uh, what's his name, Ray Wise's planet, and. So that – even though that was the – and yes, that was two, three months ago you know, as per night, but very – she is doing something that could very easily disrupt the balance of power with the Borg, and you would think that that would be in her head not to do that. Yeah, I do, but I think that – I mean that that's something that – I, I, I know that's – Actually, I don't I know, have a problem with that because – Starfleet captains love to fuck with the Borg, and Starfleet captains love to figure out a way to infect the Borg with individuality. Like, Picard wanted to do that. I'm sure if if, uh, Sisko had ever had the opportunity to deal with the Borg, I'm sure he would have wanted to do it. You know, Janeway has wanted to do it on multiple occasions. Like, that to me doesn't seem like that weird or that much of a stretch. I just don't really know what the point of any of this is. I mean, yes, it's a Seven of Nine episode, and it's to once again show us exactly how much Seven of Nine has become an individual and how she's become and grown and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's all fine. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's all fine. The episode is is surprised as this franchise seems to be every time that to find out that a Borg disconnected from the collective can be wonderful. And the show is always surprised when that happens. Again, when when it happens with Hugh, that is a major revelation. But this is – we've seen this a few times now. Uh, if you're interested in the Borg, I think the concept of, well, this weird Borg and, oh, he's cute, he's just a kid and all of those things, but – you know, I think like the like 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 Odo dealing with the Gem Hadar. That was an episode about nature and nurture, and there were also uh, per, per Avery Brooks a lot of residences with uh, gang members and people growing up in really bad neighborhoods and people being kind of doomed by social situations to be one thing no matter how hard everybody around them tries. Uh, Hugh was about that development of individuality and about that 
about the wonders of that. And I, again, I feel like this is treading old ground. It feels like all of the themes this episode has is establishing has already been established. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I, I, I think you might have liked this episode more when we started talking about it. So, so I, I apologize for ruining it for you. But if I'm wrong, correct me. But I mean, I, I, I put it this way. I liked it fine, but I was a little surprised when you said, oh, these are two great episodes at the beginning of the... I liked Knight a lot more, certainly. Yeah, I was, was more, I was more referring to Knight than, than Drone. I, I don't know. I just... I'm with you that I feel like these are these are all areas that that other Star Treks have covered better. This is something that we have seen before. And and I think that the this episode in particular really seems to think that the idea of a Borg who has never been in the collective is is a new spin on this idea. But it's really not because functionally he doesn't act any different from a Borg who has been disconnected from the collective. And I'm not someone to complain about Technobabble, but I, I do find a lot of the ways in which Voyager will really just develop these plots out of very fantastical technological happenstances to, to be kind of annoying as well. <laughs> like, yes, I no, get it. it. Like the doctor has 29th century technology and that interfaces with the nanoprobes that seven of nine still has for some reason and creates someone who takes DNA from, uh, you know, Ensign Borg and develops it into this. <laughs> and I, it's just like, you know, it takes too much time to get where it's going, and then as no, it turns out, where it's going is not that interesting. Yeah, I. What I do like about this episode is the Doctor in this episode, which what a surprise! But I mean, I I, I love that he is at once so eager to get his mobile emitter back that he's pestering Bellotta in the shower, which is probably the worst idea. Like, if you're going to pester anybody in the shower, don't do Bellotta. She will kill you. Um, Although I will say that that um, I don't really understand why she has bath towels in there because it's a sonic shower. She's not how actually do getting wet. So. sonic showers work? Listen, it's just best not to think about it. There are sound waves that make the dirt disappear off your body or something. Don't, don't, don't. It's, 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 it's Jake, it's time at Genitown. Don't worry about it. But 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 does it have anything to do with freshers? That's from the non-canonical novels. <laughs> Let's not even go there. Um, and and, and I, honestly, during that scene, I thought, oh god, the doctor's being taken over by the Borg. That's what happened, or something like that. But he really just is that eager. And but I think that would have. Teach- I think that might have been more interesting, actually. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> mostly because we we would have gotten to see Robert Picardo like ham it up as a Borg, but you know, I know he hasn't had a chance to ham it lately. Although in Darkling, he wasn't really great at hamming, so who knows? Yeah, that is true. Uh, he's good at hamming as that character. He's not good at playing a different character. I, I can see that. Yeah, that makes sense. But either way, um, and so this mobile emitter becomes one's brain, and okay, fine, whatever. Um. I really like the scene when he's examining one. One is saying, oh, well, you know, don't you? And the doctor's obviously not thrilled about it, but at the end of the day, he is saying, yes, our mission is to study new life. And for the doctor, that 
kind of trumps the inconvenience of not having his hollow emitter. He will whine until somebody figures out a way of getting him a hollow emitter, sure, but I don't know. I I I like the doctor for his integrity in that way, and that again, even something so important to him as his mobile emitter, uh, the opportunity to meet and understand a new life form is more important. That respect for life that he does have is more important to him. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the most well-realized part of the episode for sure, because yes, the doctor wants to get his mobile emitter back, and he is someone who doesn't really have a lot of patience, and, and I can even understand that. I think that the, the doctor is someone who I think has always struggled with having the crew accept him. I, I, I think that I'm not convinced that Janeway still really likes him or accepts him as part of the crew. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, losing his mobile emitter means that he is once again imprisoned in sickbay. Or if he wants to go to a holodeck, he can go to a holodeck. But he has become very, very, I think, psychologically reliant on the idea, as we all are, that we can just leave yeah. and go somewhere. And, you know, there's a reason why prison isn't very fun. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a reason why prison exists as a concept. Uh yeah, and for and, and in in a lot of in a very real way, his usefulness becomes much less without that if he's stuck in sick bay because he has been going on away missions and he did go to the Alpha Quadrant and meet Dandy Dick and he do, has been on other sh- planets and sp- starships and he's going to lose all of that if he loses that. But then, but then, you know, with all of the doctor stuff in the episode, does it really make it even worse that he gives up his mobile emitter? Well, I mean, he doesn't actually give his mobile emitter up. He he gets it back. Yeah. I mean, but uh, at, at least for the purposes of the events in this episode, he is a prisoner in sickbay. And yes, he is very, very respectful of life. He is respectful of one. He is respectful of the idea yeah. that this is a person who who deserves to live and who who has a right to life. And I don't think once he once that once the episode makes it clear that this is what is happening and that the character of one is relying on his mobile emitter and his brain to sort of regulate his body, the doctor is going to be okay with that, even though he may not like it. He might he he will come to accept it. But at the core of this episode, I think it's a little confused about what it actually is about because we've talked a lot about the doctor, but the doctor's in it for about seven minutes. Yeah. And seven of nine, this is supposed to be a seven of nine episode where she is learning and she is seeing herself essentially from a year ago and how the crew saw her. And there's that nicely, re- there's that nicely realized scene with Neelix and one walking down the corridor and they're discussing the Borg and how one notices that the crew is scared of him. And, you know, were they scared of Neelix when Neelix came on board and all these kind of things. And that's a really nice scene because I get a sense of one as a person. I get a sense of what he's noticing what he's not noticing, how he's feeling, you know, all these kind of things. But aside from that, he's he's kind of a vacant character. He's not very interesting. And I remember kind of having a similar problem with Iborg, with Hugh, where I didn't think Hugh was very yeah. interesting. And why Iborg worked so well is that it had a very, very clear idea of what the episode was about. It was about, do we have the right to use someone to destroy their species, to destroy their way of life, to destroy everybody that they know? And, you know, it doesn't hurt, of course, that Patrick Stewart and Guinan got to play a lot of scenes in that episode. 
Yeah, it's in a way Hugh has to be a a a kitten with big sad teary eyes, right? Like he just needs to be this sweet innocent little thing, and that is what Hugh is for that. He it's not a very complicated character. It's not a very in-depth character. Um and the Jem Hadar in Odo's episode has to be somebody who is feeling the pull of this life and who is very rubbing up against all of this and does not like where he is. And one is neither of those things. He's not a puppy dog. He's not fighting against his situation. He's just kind of like, well, you know, I've learned five million, I've assimilated five million point three pieces of information and... This wing is off by one point three eighths, you know, millimeters, and here's some more statistics. And oh, I'm going to die. That is his character. Yeah, and and it just feels kind of like okay. I mean, yeah. I think that for me, you know, looking at this episode in terms of a seven of nine episode is instructive, of course. But to to what end, though? You know, I mean, I think that seven of nine has really become. Uh, a good character she's 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 i don't know if i would consider her to be like one of my favorite characters but she's interesting i think that jerry ryan does a very good job with her and she continues to do a very good job with her and yeah this is an episode which has to rely a lot on jerry ryan and how she is slightly tweaking her performance as seven of nine to to put a little bit more uncertainty in it to put a little bit more feeling into it i mean it doesn't it's not you know incidental that that she starts out the episode uh you know practicing smiling and then of course the end of the episode she she stares in the mirror and she's not smiling I, i guess for me that's what it is it's just like it's an episode which which feels too on the nose to be really transcendent. Yeah, I, I I mean I'll put it this way: the only note I took about Seven of Nine in this episode is the Voyager is my collective line, and part of that, I th- in some ways maybe the shine has worn off of Seven of Nine. We've had her full for a full season. She's had her Uh-oh. big arc. Uh oh, she's she's got a lot more to do. Oh, I know she's got a lot more to do, but um, I guess in this episode, even though it was a seven of nine episode, I don't think she was a very interesting part of it. I don't know. I I I didn't find her arc in this episode to be the most interesting part of it. I think certainly the and maybe maybe if it had been a stronger through line for her in this episode that would have been a thing but i i would agree with that i mean i think that that it really does speak to you know one of the things that i noticed in watching night and and both night both night and drone is that you know this has become kind of a scrappier show this has become a, a looser show you know there was kind of a, a you know handheld stuff going on at the very beginning of this episode in the shuttlecraft you know et cetera, et cetera. this is a a much quicker show than than i think it has been and and i think to some degree to its credit uh you, you can't make tng over and over again but it's it's episodes like this which really i think you you, you see the limits of that kind of storytelling or, or maybe they're just not there yet because the plot seems to move very fast and you know, we, it starts out with the Borg and he's fully grown and he's learning and then, oh shit, here's a Borg sphere and it's going to destroy us and then he dies. 
and there's a lot of stuff going on and yeah. it just doesn't give it doesn't give itself enough time to breathe it doesn't give itself enough time to yeah. really unve- unveil what this episode at its core is emotionally about yeah i don't think the episode the episode is very divided as to whether its main character is 7 of 9 or one and having a deuteragonist is fine but I don't think this episode balances it well enough. I don't think so either. And it's a shame and because so, yeah. this is the first time that we've actually seen the Borg the Borg in, what, a season? And they're dispatched with, of course, because they have to be, because there's no way that the show is going to, to go back to, to having Voyager on the run from the Borg. But it also, like, it, once again, it... It speaks to, like, we talked a lot in Night about Janeway and how the show is critically engaging with whether or not she's, like, way too reckless to be the captain. And here again in this episode, she is making a decision without ever really seeming to think about the ethical ramifications of it. She's like, well, this thing has a, let's just, let, let's let this thing spin out and let's see what happens. You know, I don't know. We'll just, we're just spitballing here. We're just throwing ideas It'll be around. And, fun. And it's like, come on, this is a, a Borg being created with, you know, technology that is, you know, 500 years in the future. That doesn't seem to me to be something where you can just be like, well, whatever. Let's just see what happens. The resident Borg is looking at it and saying, yeah, this is really weird. We should destroy this probably because I don't know what this is. And Jane was like, nah, it'll be okay. It'll all work out in the end. We're on a television show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is this the first time we've seen a Borg sphere? No, the first one was actually from First Contact. Okay. But this All is right. the first time that we've seen one outside the of show. a movie. Yeah. Okay. I, th- well. I think the idea is that the Borg spheres are smaller, and, and I think they call it a tactical yeah. ship or something in the episode. Yeah, the implication was that this was like much, a much quicker ship. It's not as heavily armed, but yeah. Yeah, like your cubes are the ones that the Borg send out to invade, and this is just like the little you know reconnaissance thing or whatever. All right, well, I think we'll call it an episode. If you have any thoughts on Night or Drone, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at trekaboutshow.com. As always, you can check out our other podcast, Tuning In. You can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash trekaboutshow. You can find Tuning In at tuninginshow.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Truckaboutshow is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an Apple podcast review for this podcast. It is the best way for new fans to find the show. All right, next week we're going to be talking about extreme risk and in the flesh.